Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the third event in the Institute for Government's Conservative Conference Fringe Programme, How Can the Government Deliver Its Manifesto in a Post-Coronavirus World? Kindly supported by PA Consulting. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital Government at the IFG, the UK's leading independent think tank working to make government more effective. And it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to this virtual conference. Some virtual housekeeping before we get underway. We are on the record. We'll be live tweeting from at IFG events, and you can get involved with a conference hashtag CPC20. Most importantly, for those of you watching via the Conservative platform, you can submit questions for me to put to our panel using the Q&A box that should be on your screen. So do put in your questions and do tell us who you are and who you are and where you're joining us from this morning. Please do submit those questions often and early all the way through the event. Our sponsors for this event are PA Consulting, a management consultancy specialising in strategy, technology and innovation that brings together over 3,200 specialists in consumer, defence and security, energy and utilities, financial services, government health and life sciences, manufacturing and transport. They work with clients in both the private and public sector, ranging from startups to national governments operating across the UK, US, Europe and the Nordics. So, how can the government deliver its manifesto in a post-coronavirus world? The world has changed dramatically since the Conservatives won a working majority of more than 80 seats at the general election in December 2019. Coronavirus has transformed the way we live and the way we work and the way we attend party conferences. Many of us are living more of our lives online. Millions of us have left our offices and many may not return. There are huge implications for government as citizens' expectations, demands and everyday lives change and government has to adapt how it uses its resources, how it runs public services and how it makes policy. So where does all this leave the Conservative manifesto, the levelling up agenda and everything else? How can the government make good on its promises in a post-Covid and during Covid world? And how should government respond to the increasingly online lives of many of its citizens and the changing expectations that come with it? Well, we've got a fantastic panel to answer those questions and more. First, we'll be hearing from Matt Warman, Member of Parliament for Boston and Skegness since 2015 and Minister for Digital Infrastructure at the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Before entering politics, he worked for the Daily Telegraph from 1999 until 2015, focusing for much of that period on technology. And his ministerial portfolio now covers mobile coverage, the telecom supply chain, cybersecurity and building Digital UK and gigabit delivery programmes for rolling out broadband. After Matt, we'll hear from Daniel Korski, CBE, former special advisor to Prime Minister David Cameron as deputy head of the Number 10 Policy Unit and the co-founder and CEO of Public, a venture capitalist firm focused on helping technology startups transform public services. He's also chairman and co-founder of GovTech Summit, the 2020 iteration of which happened just last week, and is a member of the Commission for Smart Government. Then we'll hear from Kelly Beaver, Managing Director of Public Affairs at Ipsos Mori, leading a team of over 200 social research and evaluation professionals across every area of government policy, determining what works in achieving social and economic policy objectives. Kelly joined Ipsos Mori in 2011 from PwC. Last but not least, we'll hear from Conrad Thompson, Board Director at PA Consulting. He joined PA in 2001 and leads their business transformation service. Before joining PA, he was a senior consultant at IBM, leading on business innovation. He started his career in investment banking and has an MBA from Cass Business School. We really couldn't ask for a better lineup to discuss the questions at hand this morning. I'll invite each of our speakers to make an opening contribution of up to five minutes. 
Then we'll go into questions, some from me and lots, I hope, from you. Please do use that Q&A tool to submit them throughout the event. We'll finish at around half past 10. So without any further ado, I'll hand over to Matt. Well, thank you, Gavin, uh, and, and hello. Uh, I hope I have successfully unmuted myself, although this platform isn't being completely clear on that. Um, I'll keep going. Um, thank you for uh, having me, and thank you for assembling such an interesting uh, panel. Uh, I think the first answer to your question uh, is that those manifesto promises have to stand, um, and they have to stand uh, for political uh, and economic reasons. I, I think if I talk to my uh, even my most hawkish uh, backbench or, or ministerial colleagues, there is no sort of siren song for austerity 2.0. And, and I think there's a number of reasons uh, for that. The, the first is, uh, and, and the most important, I think, is that the reason uh, in many ways that Boris Johnson won the election in the way that he did was because people were sick of politicians not delivering on what they said they would deliver on. They were sick of people not fundamentally delivering on Brexit, but I think it goes more broad uh, than that as well. And so the idea that a government would uh, set out that kind of stall and then come back and say, well, the world has changed, so we're changing uh, some of our most fundamental promises, simply for me, uh, politically is never going to fly. It's the right thing to do, to do everything we possibly can to deliver uh, what we said we would and it's the right thing to do because uh, one of the other reasons that uh, that majority was delivered was because uh, a huge number of seats and some, some of them very much like mine but many of them uh, in in the sort of so-called blue wall um, have historically seen some really significant levels of underinvestment and it's the right thing to do uh, to uh, level that up as the phrase goes but also fundamentally though it's the right thing to do to let to pursue that leveling up agenda because that is what I think in lots and lots of ways will unleash uh, the economic benefit of uh, that we need to see in the course of the recovery and, and I think you're already seeing the uh, Conservative Party delivering on some of those uh, manifesto commitments that we were told during the election were uh, apparently simply made up to, to win votes the announcement from uh, the health secretary the other day about the locations of the 40 new hospitals that were so controversial during the election. Um, a real demonstration, I think, that this is a, a government that is uh, very much pursuing those original promises um, and also making sure, of course, that we do it in a way that is fiscally prudent uh, as far as we possibly can, uh, but recognises that the world has changed. And so I think it's inevitable uh, that uh, we see not just those priorities that uh, we laid out in the manifesto, but also we see new priorities. And a huge chunk of that, of course, is around my brief of digital infrastructure. We are doing this party conference in a unique and different way. And, and I think actually um, te technical problems notwithstanding, uh, I think this conference has bit, shows a really interesting direction of how we involve more people in new ways without necessarily uh, going, for, uh, going for something that uh, is uh, completely uh, reliant on technology. I think it's a sort of hybrid model in some ways that, that has worked quite well. Uh, and I think inevitably what that means, just as we'll see in workplaces, is that the future is a more hybridised model. The future sees more people working at home for some of the time. I think, no, it would be, uh, it would be uh, unrealistic to 
deny that, but it sees also huge numbers of people uh, working uh, is back in the office because one of the things that the pandemic has taught us is that remote working, remote living is no substitute for real life and it's no substitute for the best kind of business that has made Britain uh, the country that it is. So I think what we're going to see um, over the next few years is uh, something that sees government learning from uh, the ways that we've had to handle uh, the pandemic, learning from that new uh, normal, trying to get the very best of that uh, hybridised model. And technology is absolutely crucial for, for a big chunk of that. I think when I look at parts of my portfolio that are around how do we make sure we get the kind of connectivity that uh, we uh, we know that everybody deserves, a huge chunk of that comes from people thinking uh, in different ways about where they might want to live if they're only going into the office two or three or four days a week rather than five. So uh, I think there's a huge opportunity that makes levelling up fit with a, a new economic normal and a new uh, normal in terms of how business and, and how real life works. The the sort of defeatist attitude that says uh, that, that money is going to be incredibly tight, I think ignores the fundamental principles that were, were in the Conservative Manifesto in 2019 about investing in places in order to unleash their economic potential. Um, and that's what you're seeing in things like the Towns Fund, it's what you're seeing uh, in the broadband programme spending £5 billion of government money in places uh, where it is is simply not economic for the market to go. So I think uh, I would I would say uh, simply that uh, of course uh, if you win an election on a platform uh, of delivering then uh, one of the things we have to do in the current climate is make sure we uh, keep the trust of people by doing that but that we can do that in a way that gets the best of both worlds, that gets the best of a hybridised new normal, if that's not too wonkish a phrase, um, but also uh, make sure we get the best of that kind of investment so that we try and create that virtuous circle. It's going to be immensely challenging. The work that Rishi Sunak has had to do to keep the economy on the rails has been unprecedented to state the obvious, but it has also been immensely challenging, I think, for conservative thinking. But what we see is it's the right thing to do to get us through this and following those manifesto pledges are the right thing to do to deal with the immediately post-pandemic phase. Uh, I will pause there, but I look forward to seeing what uh, other panellists have to say and to engaging with questions. And thank you uh, once again for having me. Matt, thank you very much uh, and thank you for joining us. Um, I'll hand over to Daniel next. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you very much to the Institute for Government for inviting me to join this session. Um, it's incredibly tempting to say that the Conservative Manifesto in, 19, in 2020 is either irrelevant because the world has moved on, or frankly, that it's impossible. But I think that there's a good argument to be made that it is, um, in fact, highly relevant in parts, that it has elements that um, are missing and that need to be, if you will, colored in, filled in, um, that um, in some aspects, it was, in a sense, ahead of the curve. And Matt Warman touched a bit on this, uh, because as the world moves towards uh, greater enablement of home working, uh, people are more likely to spend time uh, outside of urban centers. And in, in a sense, um, you know, the world is getting a little bit ahead of the Conservative Manifesto commitment to the leveling up agenda. Um, so in some respects, that's worth thinking about. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we can paper over 
the extraordinary cost that the exchequer is going to going to face in this period, um, even if some of the fundamental economic rules are going to be rewritten and we're going to accept a much greater debt burden uh, over the you know decades to come, uh, I think it would be wrong to downplay the extraordinary cost both of the pandemic response, if you will, the post-pandemic response, particularly investment in health uh, services and community health, and then on top of that, the existing uh, the existing investment trailed in the Conservative Manifesto. So I suspect that there is a reckoning there, which uh, I think uh, is being papered over now for political reasons. But let's take a step back and just have a look at what it is that the crisis has done, because the truth is that the crisis has become has been a great accelerant for some people and for some institutions. So it's been absolutely fantastic for the digital economy led by work tools and financial services. We've seen extraordinary transformations in healthcare, where uh, GPs who are until now reluctant to use digital tools have now had to embrace them en masse, and in turn so have um, people going to see their GPs. You know, We've seen uh, an explosion in the relevance and importance of the hygiene industry, of the pharmaceutical industry, and everybody who works around them or in their supply chains. And of course, we've seen extraordinary resilience by supermarkets and, and some um, you know, important retail outlets. So for some people and some institutions, this crisis has been an extraordinary accelerant and that'll impact um, certain localities, certain people. At the same time, it's been a, the crisis has been a decelerant for a lot of other people. Um, you know, people who live in areas with poor broadband connections, um, poor equipped uh, schools that have struggled to adapt to an, an online or a hybrid model, of course, poor, less equipped households, um, where there's been a struggle even to access basic materials, whether it be um, smartphones or, or laptops. Um, public transport has been a great loser, and in turn, so have a lot of people who've been reliant on great transport, and indeed the areas that are um, used to commuting people around and creating an economy around large transport nodes. And of course, we know that uh, city centers, uh, physical retail, leisure, um, and, and travel have been have been devastated and will likely remain in deep trouble for years to come. So, so rather than being a great leveler, COVID has been a great uh, differentiator. And I think the question is, what are the elements of the manifesto that are still relevant in order to address that? What are the things that are missing? And what's uh, what's the sort of prioritization agenda? And I think in terms of what is relevant, it, it is it is going to um, make it even more. That woman's job is going to become even more important than it is now. Um, because without the kind of adequate, fast uh, digital infrastructure, it's simply going to be impossible for people to keep up, especially in the period in the run-up to a vaccine. But it sounds like um, even when a vaccine comes, it won't be for everybody. So for the next uh, many years, great digital infrastructure is going to be absolutely critical in order to, to allow more leveling. Um, so what's missing it's clear that the Tory manifesto had a big gaping hole around entrepreneurship and small businesses. It was it was something that conservative governments have emphasized for many years, but it wasn't something that this manifesto particularly focused on. And yet at the same time, if we're going to hope for any form of um, recovery that can bring jobs with it, um, it's clear we're going to have to invest in jobs for the future. Rishi Sunak's future fund has been one of the unsung but brilliant interventions of this crisis. Um, but the question going forward is, how is this government go going to help not just large um, corporations that employ lots of people, but are unlikely to survive successfully into the future? How is it going to help uh, the entrepreneurial economy, the startup ecosystem? And so I would argue that that is an element that's kind of missing in this in this uh, in, in the Tory manifesto as it was conceived. 
Um, and I would add um, that that the importance of digital government, which has always been seen as uh, um, a, a, a back office issue, um, is, is, is all the more important now. And unfortunately, what we've seen throughout this crisis is we're still living in a kind of digital postcode lottery. Um, local government services in Camden are highly digitized and easy to access, but in Coventry, only 35% of all services are online. Um, so there's an enormous variance in how people experience digital government. As digital government becomes all the more important, how you access benefits, how you engage with job centers, um, how you, of course, get access not just to primary healthcare but also secondary healthcare. Um, so an, an enormous investment is going to have to be um, focused on the digital transformation of public services in a way that this conservative manifesto did not really touch on. Um, certainly not uh, the extent to which. Theresa May's and David Cameron's manifestos did. And finally, um, we're going to have to confront the, the cost. There isn't going to be money for everything, even if we rewrite the rules. Um, and I think there's also a real political challenge for the Conservatives, um, because if it becomes a, a fight over the next couple of years about who can spend more, um, we are always likely to be outspent by either the French or Labour. And so um, I think there's some real important questions that are going to have to be made, um, addressed over time as, 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 as the Conservative Party and the government begins to prioritise what it wants to spend money on. That's it. Daniel, thank you very much for your extra things uh, that should perhaps should have been in the manifesto on top of the manifesto pledges and uh, an interesting sort of digital twist on levelling up and how that may have become even more urgent uh, given the pandemic. Thank you. Um, we'll hand over to Kelly next. Thanks, Gavin. It's great to be here. So firstly, just a bit of uh, thought about the overall scale of the pandemic and the impact on public opinion. Ipsos Mori has been tracking public opinion in the UK for over 50 years, and we have never seen an issue that has coalesced public support around this single issue at that scale ever. So the global financial crisis, Brexit, pale into insignificance by way of public concern and worry around COVID-19. Nine in ten individuals tell us it's a top issue facing Britain today. And it's no surprise because it has really transformed how we're living day to day in the short term, how or how not we're accessing public transport, how we access public services, how we walk into a shop today wearing a face mask when back in March, it would have been inconceivable that the British public would have done such a thing. So things have changed a lot in the short term. And when we ask the public about what they think will last for the longer term, they are still quite divided actually. So the assertions and the assumptions around how our society will change, there's still around a third of the British public think that some of the things that we have seen happen, like accessing services online, accessing shopping online, they think that will continue and increase in the future as a result of this marker in time. But there's the same again who thinks thing will, things will go back to relatively how they were in the past. And so it's in this sort of uncertainty in this context that we have to look at the Conservative manifesto. And it was quite an aggressive, fiscally aggressive manifesto. There was a significant amount of spending. And you'd be forgiven uh, for thinking that perhaps the cupboard was a bit bare, given the most popular chancellor that we have ever seen, Rishi Shunak has had to spend an awful lot of money at this time and really, really well needed. But the cupboard, even though it is bare, this black swan event of COVID, which was unprecedented, unexpected and likely to have an impact, may mean that the normal fiscal rules just do not apply. And actually, we may need to see uh, continued spending in future alongside this manifesto. But whilst I've said that a lot of the changes are uncertain in the public's minds, we are still looking at some really underlying 
trends that have been both revealed but also accelerated by COVID. And those things put the, the manifesto in some ways, they've been a great catalyst for it, but in others, they may add challenges that that manifesto may need to evolve and adapt uh, to address in future. So just firstly, looking at what it has revealed, the manifesto, or not the manifesto, COVID has revealed a really uh, importance in having a resilient public services. And these were things already that years of austerity had taught the great British people. Uh, they were very keen to see the dial shift in favour of public spending back at the end of 2019. And that has not changed since. In fact, it has, it has increased. And we see underneath that top concern around COVID, concerns around policing, concerns around our NHS, concerns around public services, and how tailored and how personalised and how they meet the needs of the public are rising in concern. So it is clear that the public will still want that level of spending on public services. And with COVID, people also thought that the rising concern in climate around climate change might have declined, but the public are calling, six and 10 of them are calling for a green recovery from COVID. And, and that is part, and that was part of the, the Conservative manifesto. So again, that has exposed and accelerated the need for that in particular. But what it's also done is that it's accelerated a trend around scrutiny of our structures. There has never been a time when some of the inequalities in British society have been so exposed and laid bare as in the last nine months. When some of the research that we've looked at shows wealthy people saving more. It shows poor BAME key worker communities uh, being more exposed to the virus. And you can see that in some of the, the testing data and reporting. And also young people with unemployment uh, likely to reach a high for them and also just increase in activism in society. So, so some of our structures have been really laid bare. And when we talk about levelling up, levelling up historically was around levelling up in the regions. And there may need to be a look at what levelling up means post-COVID, because levelling up will be around health inequalities that have been laid bare, racial inequalities that have been laid bare, uh, and also our young people. If you'd have said to, a, pair, to a, a member of British society back in 2003, whether they think their children would be poorer than them, 12% thought it was the case. Last year, it was 45%. And I know if I pulled this today, it could be higher again. So we need to look at levelling up, perhaps much more in the round moving forward. So there have been trends that have been accelerated, things that have been revealed about British society that we knew but were underneath the surface. Uh, but ultimately, COVID and this black swan event may be offering a perfect opportunity for transformation moving forward. Thank you very much, Kay. Some fascinating uh, facts and figures in there and sort of giving that longer sweep of how we got to where we are at the moment. Um, just before I hand over to Conrad for our sort of final opening contribution, just a reminder that you can uh, submit your questions using the Q&A tool. I know somebody has already, so thank you for, for that. Um, do keep putting in your questions. And in the meantime, let's hand over to Conrad. Thank you very much, Gavin. Um, fascinating points from all three speakers leading up to this. Um, what I wanted to first do is just touch on this question about is the manifesto uh, still the right one and, and should we continue to implement against it? Uh, my view, our view is that um, the manifesto at the time looked ambitious. I think with all the changes that we've just heard, it now seems audacious. Um, and our view is that um, rather than just continuing to deliver all of those expectations, there is a need for a level of reset and reprioritization. 
um, the connection to deliver on that manifesto remains very important. But I think any organization uh, should be looking at what's happened in the last 12 months and taking a step back and revisiting its priorities, the spending commitments to say, can we still deliver all of this in the timescale? And, uh, and to suggest a, a variation to that plan, which becomes more deliverable and more achievable, I think is, is our view of something that should be considered. But putting then the manifesto to one side, I think the question becomes, um, how do you go about that delivery? Um, and what we've heard from the other speakers is that um, it's not just a question of resetting the priorities, it's also a question of how you deliver in this post-COVID world. And that is going to be very challenging. And in my view, there is one aspect that will have a really major influence on whether that delivery is a success or a failure, and that is trust. Um, and Matt mentioned it right at the outset, and I do think trust is gonna get right to the heart of how government can and should deliver in a post-coronavirus world. Um, so why do I say that? Well, we're in the midst of one of the greatest trust exercises imaginable. Um, I know contact tracing, the rule of six, all of that rely on government guidance and the success of local and national lockdowns will hinge on trust. Um, and the powerful cut through of some of the pledges to die in a ditch, get Brexit done, oven and ready deals, they're all great. But the reality is, um, if trust is going to be executed on, it's more than simple sloganeering. It needs to be a long game. Um, so as government wrestles with the relevance of the manifesto and reframes the priorities for our nation, how does it go about building trust and delivering on its promises? Um, and I believe there are three actions that will aid that delivery and thus build trust. Number one, we need to radically reimagine new solutions to meet these evolving priorities. Um, Daniel already mentioned healthcare, and I do think social care is one major area of opportunity, particularly with a vast number of vulnerable people left on their own when shielding. We know wearable devices, at-home diagnostic devices, virtual GP consultations can all help people live in their own homes and improve life quality, all while bringing cost savings. Um, and these ingenious approaches needn't always be entirely new. Consumer devices such as Amazon Echo can really help care users feel less isolated and more independent. In some of the Pathfinder projects we've been working with with local authorities, this approach has delivered over 10 million net savings with nine out of 10 users saying care technology increase their feelings of safety and security. So if the first issue is around reimagining, the second is about delivering with greater pace and adaptiveness. In our view, outgo multi-year transformation programs where solutions implemented at conventional pace are out of date by the time they're operational. And in comes an adaptive approach where policy and implementation flexes in line with public demand. We've seen this work in many areas of industry, life sciences, healthcare, financial services, for example, are all creating new products and services far faster than in the past. And there are encouraging signs 
in some areas of government digital as well, which I'm sure Matt will say more on. But imagine the possibilities if this were extended more broadly, particularly in the form of adaptive experiments led by local authorities. And then thirdly, we do need to encourage and incentivize greater collaboration between government and industry. To meet citizens' rising expectations, the ongoing relationship between government and industry requires rethinking. 2020 has demonstrated how the two can work in tandem to deliver expertise and the right outcomes at speed. And this approach wins trust. Recent research from the Elderman shows that when it comes to the pandemic, there's twice as much public trust in a combined effort from government and industry than when either of the two goes it alone. For example, look at the success of the UK Ventilator Challenge, which I'm proud to say my team were a part of. Government and industry came together to manufacture and distribute tens of thousands of ventilators at unprecedented pace and scale. Over 5,000 offers of help were received, competitive rivalries put to one side and risk shares. And this is all driven by unifying common purpose. So to come back to the initial question of how government can deliver its manifesto, we must first ask, is the manifesto still relevant? We know the world has changed. The public has lived that change. So we need to be brave, candid and agile enough to respond to that. And in doing so, we must restore that bedrock of trust. Today, we have an opportunity to radically reimagine better solutions delivered with more pace and adaptability and to encourage greater collaboration between government and industry. And I hope it's an opportunity we seize because those who neglect opportunity can rarely command it a second time. Conrad, thank you very much indeed. A, a brilliant summary of everything we've heard, as well as some really interesting points as well. And you've um, completely preempted the first two questions that I was going to put to uh, everyone on the panel before we go to audience questions. Um, so I'll go in the same uh, order that we did uh, with the opening remarks. The two sort of questions I wanted to put to everybody were, first of all, how do you do that prioritisation practically? How, how, how do you work out what is still uh, deliverable and what you want to want to go for first? And that second question about how do you build trust, especially when it comes to the use of new technology? I think we've seen a few stories around the NHS contact tracing app and around A-level algorithms, for instance, where that sort of building trust in new technology and new techniques is especially important. How, how do we go about that? So, um, Matt, let's go to you first. I think the answer to your question in some ways, um, how do we prioritise? It sort of feels more obvious now rather than less. In some in some ways, what we're having to talk about is how do you uh, adopt the measures that preserve the maximum number of jobs in an, ex in an extraordinary period while also, uh, of course, balancing the, the public health stuff. I don't think that's going to change in the immediate future so it doesn't be it becomes less of a conversation i think about of the kind that we were having in the election and it becomes a continuation of what we're seeing uh, and what we've seen over the last few months uh, de dealing with the pandemic more generally and so we know um as as, as was as the ipsos mori stuff sort of de demonstrates not least we know that what people care about has shifted slightly from a very straightforward 
uh, public health is the absolute number one priority to, as this has persisted, uh, understanding that there are uh, health consequences to economic measures, if that makes sense. So, so I think in some ways uh, that sort of more nuanced debate is, is going to continue um, for the uh, foreseeable future. Um, and, and the answer to your second question seems to me to be sort of re really easy to say and really hard to do. And and, and you gain people's trust by, by doing what you say you're going to do. I, I, I think actually that it's what's important to me about those uh, the, the 40 hospitals, for instance, um, is not so much that there is going to be a new hospital in place X, Y, and Z kind of thing. It's about saying one of those really pivotal, really divisive pledges, which shouldn't be divisive, but for whatever reason is, um, in the course of the election, um, is something where uh, the party has been very clear that we said we'd do it and we're going to do it. I think, you, I think we have to uh, think about building trust by looking beyond the pure COVID measures but they're important of course saying what did we uh, gain people's trust on in the 2019 election because we did gain uh, the trust borrowed or otherwise of huge numbers of first night first time conservative voters and how do we fulfill their hopes and dreams because that's what it's got to be about and in some ways post-covid that means aiming higher rather than compromise thanks matt daniel um Thank you very much. You have managed to straight uh, onto the two, I think, most difficult uh, questions. And I'm pleased that Matt um, so enthusiastically tried to answer the first, go for the slightly um, easier question, which is the second one, which is how do we how do we gain trust? And I, I really think that the government could learn a lot here um, because I think you gain trust, especially uh, trust in uh, digital tools, algorithms um, and systems like that by opening, by working in the open, by having very clear governance arrangements that people recognize and see, give them a source of, sort of redress, and then um, a, a sort of fundamental uh, commitment to transparency. So working in the open, um, what, what I mean by that is being very clear upfront what it is you're trying to do, what it is you're relying on, what the data is that, um, that you're using, um, good, bad, um, you know, whatever the suppositions and lessons are. And it's fair to say that this government um, has not been world-beating in offering up uh, an insight into um, how it has made um, algorithmic decisions on uh, exams or, or, or how the dashboard is working, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's something to be done there and just working more in the open. And I don't think it undermines anything that the government is trying to do or is in any, is in any way a tool um, that the government should fear. I think it, I think most people will be much more accepting of what the government is trying to do if it just was to say, this is how we're going to do it. We recognize that we don't know all the answers. You can scrutinize the data, the tools, the approaches. Tell us if you think we've gotten stuff wrong, um, but, but at least you know what it is. So I think working in the open is number one. Two, governance. I, I think that the new age that we live in, where so much is becoming increasingly digitized, um, does not have sufficiently robust and recognized governance arrangement. So as a society, we have been incredibly successful at creating um, governance arrangements around the most contentious issues. And I'm here thinking about human uh, embryology research. So one of the most contentious issues around, but we've actually managed to create a lot of political consensus, society-wide consensus, and a series of governance arrangements around what, what, uh, how, to, how to investigate um, em embryological research. 
we have not yet done that when it comes to the use of data and digital uh, tools for particular public service. And we need a kind of a set of governance arrangements that people recognize and that people feel they have easy recourse to. Um, you know, everybody knows that you can write to your MP. Uh, some people have heard about an ombudsman. Um, but on the whole, we have uh, uh, even fewer people know what the ICO is, the Independent uh, Information Commissioner. We, we're lacking some kind of way in which people can recognize a governance arrangement and know what button to press if they're concerned. Not that pressing that button necessarily, uh, you know, provides redress, but it provides a an ac access to some form of um, concern expression. And then finally, just transparency. I, I think this government would do much better if it was much more transparent around. Um, you know, the use of digital technologies and data. I think people, you know, everybody always says to me when I champion the use of technology, ah, but you've got to be careful about older generations and the demographic shift, to which I always say, you know, older people are much younger than you think. Um, you know, the, 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 those who are in their 50s and 60s today are very different than those who are in the 50s and 60s, 15, even 10 years ago. The And, and the crisis, of course, has just expedited that. Uh, and so I think we have there's much more latent support for what the government will need to do if it just provides some of the handrails so that people know what's going on and have a sense that they can redress any concerns. Make things open. It makes things better. One of uh, government digital services design principles. Thank you very much, Daniel. Kelly. Sure. So as Matt rightly said, we, we've been tracking public views around what's important for a very long time. And in particular around COVID, we started tracking public concern around different uh, aspects of the COVID pandemic from around February, March time, even before it was really a, a massive thing here in the UK. And again, Matt was right that in around July time, we started to see this rise in public concern around the economic aspect of COVID, whereas before it had been predominantly health. And also we look at this across multiple countries and the UK is actually one of the most risk averse from a health perspective uh, compared to other countries who were much further along the trajectory thinking about the economy. And I think as we come through the winter period and into the beginning of next year, we will start to see that down move even further. And so a lot of the economic policies in the manifesto will really start coming to the fore in public's mind. Um, but I won't focus too much on the prioritisation question, trust. So this is like a hobby horse of mine. Trust did not fall off a cliff yesterday. It's really important that we understand trust in government has been low for a really long time and not just in the UK, in lots of countries around the world. It dropped between 1950 and 1970 and since then it has been low. Certain people make money out of talking about how trust is low. Uh, we don't. So at the minute, trust, yes, it has been low all the time, but it, it has unfortunately dipped a little bit further in the last couple of years, partly because of the Brexit challenges, but also partly because of challenge, like the massive challenges that our government are facing at the minute. And they do need public support and trust, as Conrad rightly said, to help as we come out at the back end. We are still very much in the thick of it. Um, and trust is measured in lots of different ways. There are lots of uh, correlates and key determinants in what drives public trust. Some of those are around comp competence and saying, saying and doing, or doing what you say you will do. Some of it is about your leadership. But as, uh, as Daniel rightly said, a lot of it does come down to being open and being transparent. And that is some of the, these are some of the key things that if government are moving forward and seeking to rebuild trust with the public or certainly improve it, that kind of engagement with the public about what they're doing, what planning to do, but also engagement through local areas. Um, because we, when we look at where people have most trust and which parts of the, uh, the governance establishment they have most trust in, it does move from the local to the national to the international. And it does make a lot of sense that it does that. It's quite intuitive. 
one of the things government does do quite well on is people and from a trustworthy perspective they do think that government is working in their best interests compared to when we look at organizations like the banks of the oil industry for example um, but ultimately there are lots of determinants of trust it hasn't been it didn't fall overnight it's been low for a very long time um, and actually uh, there are things that government can do around engaging with people working through local partnerships and also the public private thing that conrad mentioned that is not something the public are adverse to at all in fact eight and ten Eight and ten say that they, from an infrastructure investment perspective, would support uh, public-private infrastructure uh, working together. So I think there's there's not uh, public are not adverse to public-private partnerships, um, and also the local local levels um, working through local areas as well. Thanks, Kelly. Conrad, yeah, great. Answering I mean, yeah. your own questions in a sense. <laughs> yeah, thank you, and Kelly. I couldn't agree more, both on the trust point and the private-public partnership, and it's great that the data supports some of those views. Um, <laughs> let me try and um, not, not reiterate some of the points, but just bring a couple of new perspectives on it. So on the prioritisation question, um, what organisations often think about as they're thinking through prioritisation is three aspects to it, which is, could we do something? Should we do something? Will we do something? And my sense at the moment is uh, government is often very good at the could we, and putting manifesto pledges out there around, well, we could do this and we could do that. I think best at the moment is, should we, and in particular, do we have all the resources to do everything? And I think that the, the public would entertain a more honest debate about what are the resources in the broadest sense of the world available to the government? And therefore, should we really commit to all of these things? And through doing that, I think we then get to the, will we? and a far greater sense that things are going to happen because there's been an honest assessment of priorities and resources. So that's where I'd go on the on the prioritization question. Um, on the trust question, again, you know, it's great we're coming back to that. Obviously, feel very passionate about that. Uh, again, a sort of simple metaphor that I think is quite useful when thinking about trust is it has three elements, which is that there's a credibility, a reliability, and an intimacy. Um, so the credibility is, do you believe this person or this government can do what it says it's going to do? And I won't offer a view on that, but we've touched on that. There's the reliability, does it do what it says it does? And that's really important. The one that I'd probably highlight is intimacy, which actually builds on um, the point that Daniel was making, which is this two-way engagement and transparency. And I think a, a greater level of honesty would allow a higher level of trust and in particular education around that you know we've always lived in a world of, of threats and risks and i think being more honest about that and educating people as to the benefits of digital but recognizing there are some risks and, and allowing people to acknowledge those risks and educate people around those risks i, I think would build a high level of trust Fantastic. Thank you, Conrad. Um, I'm now going to go to some audience questions. Um, so I'll try to get a couple of rounds of these in. So the first round, and I'll, I'll sort of go in reverse order to the panel this time, uh, if that suits everybody. Um, so the first question we had uh, is from Anne-Marie, which is which manifesto commitments can actively help economic and social recovery post-COVID? And the other question for this round is from Adam Micklethwaite from the Good Things Foundation. With 9 million people unable to use the internet independently and 13.6 million lacking digital work skills, how can we equip everyone to participate in the future economy? And there's another question um, from Anne-Marie actually, which sort of looks at that, but from a particularly 
rural perspective, especially when it comes to broadband connectivity. So which manifesto commitments can actively help economic and social recovery post-COVID? And how do we equip everyone to be able to participate in the future economy? Let's go to Conrad first this time. Okay, uh, I'll try and be brief and I'm not going to pretend to get to get all the answers onto this. Um, on the actively help the recovery, uh, my view is the COVID situation, and you can argue the timeline, has, some, has accelerated the adoption of digital services from between two years and five years. Uh, and certainly if I talk to banks and, and pharmaceutical firms, they are clear it's just accelerated the adoption of digital. Uh, and my view is that I, you know, I'm not close enough to the 300 manifestos to say which one should or shouldn't. But broadly speaking, a far greater use of digital I think allow us to deliver far more of the manifesto commitments um, faster and more effectively. Um, on the digital work skills, I, I think um, what I'd love to see is far more use of apprenticeships, far more use of um, you know the, the skills arrangements that the government are introducing. For me, you know, university education is is hugely important, but an even greater focus on on technology and apprenticeships um, and all the uh, vocational aspects of education, I think, should be a priority. And I know, I know, the government is making quite a, a recent important announcements in that. Great, thank you, Kelly. So, just firstly, on the digitally enabling um, in the UK. So, one of the things that struck us at the early stages of collecting data around people and their interactions on COVID is one in 10 people were using the internet for the first time ever in and around April this year. They hadn't really engaged with it. And I won't stereotype who those individuals are, but you can probably imagine the kind of individuals who would not have engaged with online shopping in any shape or form, but they felt that they had to during the April, May period. And so there has been already this push and this drive to digital that has encouraged some of those individuals who were not early adopters to start to adopt uh, digital and they may stick with that longer term. But of course, all of the, the manifesto pledges and the hard work that's happening with DCMS at the minute, rollout of super fast broadband, making sure that it's accessible in a good quality in rural areas and parts of the UK, all of that will become all the more important to enable people to have affordable and accessible high quality broadband support. The point around economic and social and what kind of parts of the manifesto can really help deliver that. I think it's so the, the manifesto did have a, a strong focus on levelling up in the northern regions, in particular due to the regional inequalities. And I picked up on this a little bit when I spoke earlier. But there are other parts of the UK now that have been hit hard by COVID that were not just in the north. There are seaside towns, there are towns and parts of the UK where people were dependent on jobs and transport, transport and travel. And actually, when we think about where to target support and resources post-COVID, Yes, the northern uh, regions, given the regional inequality, but also those areas where they need support because their industries have been uh, really struggling in the last nine months and will continue to do so for some years, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, those that would really help with both the economic and the social, because we do not want those areas going backwards from a health inequality or a, a broader uh, deprivation perspective. Thanks, Kelly. Daniel. So um, the manifesto um, towards the back end, um, I think it was sort of page 35 or 36, 
um, had a section on invest in people. And, and, and in a way, I can understand why it was kind of towards the back end. It's not the sexiest thing. And it's also enormously difficult for governments um, to, um, you know, skills upgrade people outside of the early years and, and the formal educational setting. But, but I think that section actually contained lots of really important things that the government's building on. There was a commitment to apprentices, apprenticeships. Um, there was a commitment to uh, invest significant amounts of money. I think it was something like $2 billion in, in FE uh, colleges. There was a commitment for 20 new technical uh, colleges. So so I think in a way, if you're looking for things that were in the manifesto that we should build on in order to address some of the new challenges that have emerged in the pandemic, to me, that section is really critical. Um, and so I and 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 um, and we've seen and Conrad, you mentioned this already. We've seen over the last couple of weeks, the government doing exactly that, um, coming back to some of the sort of life learning themes that several governments have grappled with. Um, the reality, though, is it, it's enormously hard. And, and I remember from my own number 10 days, how difficult it is and for a number of reasons. Most of the people who are most vulnerable are uh, on the whole reluctant to uh, take the necessary steps early enough for them to get the requisite reskilling in time for the collapse of the industry that they might be working in. Um, if they do, um, if they are interested um, for, for some reason, um, it, it, it's often the case that the, it is not sufficiently incentivized for their employer to invest in their skills. Um, so often the employer isn't going to offer what they need. And so the person who has uniquely in their area in their sector decided that they want to do something, then have to, has to go somewhere else than to their employer. So problem number two. Uh, three, um, uh, the, the quality of service of any kind of outside of work offering is very varied across the country. So there are certain places you can go that has fantastic uh, offerings, um, and there are other places where there just isn't anything. And I, of course, the great hope is that now that we're all becoming more used to remote working, it won't really matter whether you're in Boston or in Exeter, you should be able to get access to the same kind of content. But we also know that the most successful learning is blended learning, and it's probably valuable um, to kind of look at the provision in a different way. So, 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 and the final thing to say is, even if you have somebody who um, who has decided that they want to do something different than lots of their peers, um, even if their employer isn't providing them the support, but they've managed to find something that is actually going to be helpful, the question is how to finance that. And I think the government is, is in, a, in the process of, of fixing a lot of that, but unless we kind of look at each one of these in turn, I think it's going to be very hard to offer the the the, the sort of skilled up um, employers required for the next uh, generation. I think, as I said, that back end page you know thirty six of the manifesto is actually going to have to become sort of page three in future. Excellent. Thanks, Daniel. Matt. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I admire Dan's uh, ability to remember what page everything is on in the manifesto. Uh, but uh, I, I, I absolutely agree uh, with the, everything that, that's just been said. I think in some ways you, you ask two questions, but they're the same question because the answer is skills, 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 right? The thing that will make the single biggest difference uh, to the recovery is making sure that having seen this really significant acceleration that was happening already but pre-COVID, but has been sort of the acceleration has been accelerated, um, then it is that 
uh, reskilling, retraining that sense that, uh, for instance, when I put uh, online uh, some of the PM's recent announcements about um, reskilling, then uh, quite a few of the comments were basically, there's no way anyone ever retrains once they get over 50. And that's simply not a sustainable approach for the modern economy. But it, the good news, I guess, is that it is absolutely one of the key things that those announcements were seeking to address. Um, now, there is, it would be tempting to say, but really the most important thing is about digital connectivity that that's the one uh, really important manifesto commitment. It, it, it isn't in the sense that it is foundational, but it's pretty useless if you don't really make the most of the stuff on top of it. Giving someone a connection that they're not making the most of it is not really doing the job, and that's not the intention of the programme, of course. Uh, but I think focusing on, uh, on the skills piece that says some of this is around better digital skills, of course it is, some of it's around making people less nervous about using uh, government online services about understanding that algorithms fundamentally are a force for good not a force for evil all, all of that stuff that, that's fine but a lot of reskilling is much less uh, tech savvy than that it's about training people for the manufacturing jobs that will be uh, for the future it's about training people for uh, stuff that has in some form or other been with us for many hundreds of years and it's very easy to sit in a, in a bubble and say well if everything's going digital then, then there's no need to worry about this stuff um, it is about making sure that you don't forget that the future of the sort of a big chunk of the northeast is around green manufacturing jobs for instance that is not around the sort of further digitization of, of public services but of course government has got to do both thanks matt uh, we've got about six minutes left so i'm going to squeeze in one quick final round of questions and i'll go in the original order to the panel this time so starting with matt and finishing with conrad um so the two um sort of themes i suppose um of the questions uh, one is a big one around local government fiona byrne asks does the panel think that there would be benefit in strengthening links with local government to, to help deliver manifesto policies going forward and dr mel selwood asks isn't the leveling up agenda in the sense of reducing social and economic divides strengthening local democracy the key trust issue so local government is sort of one area and the second uh, which has come through from Rachel Nunn what role does the media have to play in helping the government be honest uh, and again Anne-Marie also raises a similar point uh, agreeing on trust need to engage with the public but feel that communication can be hampered uh, by what she describes as the quote unquote hostile media so local government and where the media fits into all of this Matt, let's go to you first. Uh, thanks. So, so I think local government is absolutely crucial. We've used local government to deliver the existing uh, super fast broadband programme, for instance. So, so I've had to work very closely with those sorts of mechanisms. What strikes me, though, is that there is a huge variation in the quality and, and the effectiveness of local government. What I think strengthening local government should look like, and I'm sort of straying wildly into uh, another department and, and another minister's brief, but I think what local government looks like from my perspective is making sure that what is, uh, to use the example from earlier, what is available in Camden is available nationwide. It's about saying that sort of government becomes a library for best practice, um, if, if you like. And I think there is a, a, a fine balance between mandating uh, that best practice versus giving councils the freedom to tailor their 
services to their local area and, and i think that that second point is where you retain the trust because what's right in camden is not necessarily what's right in boston by any means um on 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 the media i, I sort of think if if you're but i mean i i used to be a journalist so i'm obviously massively biased but if you uh, if you are shooting the messenger um then you're missing the point kind of thing uh, but that said I do think we have in this country a, a, a media that is incredibly diverse. Um, that is, on the one hand, a huge strength, but we also, I think, need to bear in mind uh, that people, that individuals, very often see the world through an increasingly narrow uh, set, or, or even just literally one channel. Um, and what government can do to make sure that all of that is the independent regulation sort of continues to do the job that it was set up to do uh, and adapts to the to the digital age i think is a hugely important challenge for the next few years because the polarized debate that we see right now where there is too much misinformation from a whole host of sources uh, is only going to continue to do more harm than good thank you matt daniel Thank you very much. Um, I, I basically think that um, we are in the middle of, a, of an unfinished revolution when it comes to um, the need to bring you know, decision making closer to citizens and the problems. Um, we have had a um, very uneven and I would argue almost half born process of devolution where we have devolved extraordinary powers to certain parts of the country, very limited powers to other parts of the country, have in certain cases devolved power but not capacity, and in other places created a, I'm sorry to say, very confusing and even in places terrible mismatch and overlapping authorities, so that in the greater Manchester area you have enormous power for health, but not in the West Midlands. In the West Midlands you have a combined mayor with with undefined capacities and limited relationship to over the largest uh, council in the country, the Birmingham City Council, which uh, over many years has proven to be, um, you know, um, in need of real reform, um, he says diplomatically. Uh, so, so we basically have a, a half-born um, revolution of devolution. Um, and I don't think the answer to this is uh, exclusively to relocate offices, whether the offices of the Conservative Party or departments into the regions. I'm totally for that agenda, but I don't think it is a sufficient agenda because I think it's about um, not bringing just central institutions out into the inverted commas regions, but actually empowering people, not just politically, not just with capacity, but also financially. So, um, you know, if I was um, the government, I would take this opportunity and, and building on what Matt has said, um, really great uh, you know, experiences with uh, using and collaborating with local authorities, not least uh, on digital, but also in the pandemic uh, phase, I would take that opportunity and I would try to kind of push much harder on, on kind of finishing that revolution. I think the United Kingdom needs to become much more um, decentralized and devolved. I think central government um, has proven that it is not always able to make the best decisions for everybody. Um, it's very difficult to gather all the data that you need. We're proving that we're showing this morning Excel isn't the best to gather everything in. Um, leaving that aside, I, I think there's 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 a lot of capacity out there, and I think it goes brilliantly with what Matt was saying earlier, which is that 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 the pandemic has led to a form of remote working, which is meaning meaning that more people are going to be you know perhaps staying in 
where their inverted commas from or will be interested in moving out of the urban end areas or moving inverted commas back to where they were from. And I think that could over time create a, a much greater pool of capacity for local uh, government. Uh, and I think we need to take advantage of that, but it does require a much bigger um, kind of, you know, push. And just quickly on the on the media side, I mean, Matt touched brilliantly on the sort of more thornier questions about disinformation and so on. Let me just address the link between that and then local government. I think that over the last couple of years, we've seen um, a real deterioration and in many areas, a collapse of local news. Um, and I do think given all the things that, um, you know, Kelly mentioned about trust, uh, and, and in fact, Ipsos Mori has, has, has sort of shown over the many surveys, you know, people do have a high degree of, of, of trust in things that they know and see and are, and are local. And I do think that the reju rejuvenation of this state um, and the role that the media plays in our politics will require us thinking through how we support, you know, local media outlets without that support in any way skewing or, or, or creating a sort of state-run, you know, media sector locally. Um, I just would highlight that as, a, as, I think, a key issue for or future democratic rejuvenation. Thanks, Daniel. Kelly. I'll be quick. I'll be quick. So whether it's local or national, I think the key thing is around making sure that the voice of the public is heard in local decision making, national decision making, and also through the implementation cycles. We've seen a rise in things like a, the flavour of the month is participatory democracy, citizens assemblies, public dialogue events. And when used well and when done well, balanced and neutral, they can add huge amounts of value to not just the quality of what is delivered in local or national uh, levels, but also how accountable uh, the public feel those delivering it are to them. So that really helps with transparency, openness, and bringing the voice of the citizen into decision-making and, and delivery and implementation. And then just on the role of the media, um, I think I'd be amiss if I didn't mention just the sheer rise in things like conspiracy theories at this particular time and the misinformation. Um, it has been an absolute plague during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. We see people not following rules and we, we see the major minority of people who are saying that they don't follow rules. And you have a look at some of the other traits that they have. They're also the individuals who mostly take their news and their media from social media and are more likely to believe a number of conspiracy theories. So there are links there, strong links that have been tested through numerous academic papers now. And that's something that moving forward, yes, the platforms need to get a hold on, but, but we need to get a hold on as a society. I'll just leave it there. Thank you very much, Kelly. And finally, Conrad. I'll be very quick. So I, I think we know that local communities are and have to change as part of the, the pandemic. Uh, and I think that's a great opportunity to try out different things, um, you know, whether it's different ways in which we use towns and local communities, rural events. Um, it will absolutely change how we should go about things. And therefore, local government can be a real testbed um, for innovation. I think there's a massive opportunity for local government to try out different approaches to see what works, you know, think big, start small, scale fast, see if these things can, can happen. Uh, and then secondly, innovation is a team sport. So everyone needs to play a role, whether it's industry, academics, local government, central government and the media. Uh, and therefore, for me, the role of the media would be to get behind more of these local ideas, local innovations and to promote them and, and sponsor them rather than necessarily being more negative about them. So I think that's the role local media needs to be performing even more of. 
Thank you very much, Conrad. Well, that's it for this event, um, but please do tune into our other virtual Fringe events later today. The next one gets underway in just under half an hour at 11am on Global Britain, What's the Plan? Featuring Minister of State for International Trade, Greg Hans, MP, among others. And I'll be back at 12.30 with another panel very relevant to this one, discussing digital transformation in government. All that remains for me to say is some very big thank yous. First to all of you for joining us and some excellent questions. Sorry if we didn't make it to yours. Second, PA Consulting for supporting uh, a wonderful event. And finally, do join me in a virtual round of applause for our fantastic speakers today. A huge thank you to them. Hopefully see you at one of our other events later and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. <laughs>